Okay, I see little waveforms. All right, I'm recording now too. Uh, yes. So, uh, oh boy. So, so how do we do this? Well, we kind of we kind of were uh, were were d- dancing around it by talking about authors off mic. We uh, <laughs> this is okay. So this is this is a weird this is a weird one. Uh, eventually, we're well, going- wait a second. Did we do? Are we going to do the thing where one of us or someone reads the opening and we stick it in the front? What is the opening of it? Oh. I think we should. Do we have we have friends who can read a uh, who can read this like this for opening paragraph? Mother and I stand on the weathered and warped back steps, looking up at my father, who sits tall and handsome in work clothes, astride a chestnut horse. To one side lie the orchard and a path leading under the horse chestnut tree, past a black walnut and a peach plum tree to the privy. On the other side are the woodshed, the ice house, and the cornfield, and beyond, a field of wheat. And the other thing I want to make sure we do, because we didn't do it the last time, is we should say, this is Clickacast, a Beverly Clary podcast. Did we not do that last time? No, we did not do that the, the last time. And, and and also, that's Phil Gonzalez. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Should we go ahead and get that out of the way? And, I, and I'm John McCoy? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Should we do it? Let's get that all out of the way. And okay. who, whichever one of us loses the, po- the coin toss and edits this, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make it all make sense. I'm going to let you know right off the bat, I have three podcasts currently going. I will do it Th- for you. That would be way. fantastic. I have, I have, oh, okay. I'm, my third one is, uh, I'm actually happy because my third one was supposed to get back into the swing of things this last week. And then my co-host was like, I forgot it's my birthday. I'm not going to be able to record. Can we do it next <laughs> week? So between my, between my third, three shows now, this is my fourth, I guess, uh, I'm a little, I'm a little slap for time. Plus I'm also suddenly having to edit tons of videos for work. So, <laughs> which is oh, now yeah. my job. I guess it's what I do now. I've never been a video editor and now now that we're all are you are you using adobe premiere i am using whatever i got for free online it is called <laughs> it is called uh, wonder wonder something it's actually a pretty good video editing software for what i have to do uh but actually no i paid no my work paid for it but it's it's simple to use and i'm i'm doing just fine with it they're not gonna pay for an adobe product are you kidding it's like 500 dollars <laughs> a year <laughs> adobe uh now when there's like so many great knockoffs available online already um, so this was a, this is, so yeah, we're covering a, a girl from Yam Hill. Is it Yam Hill or Yam Hill? Uh, I don't know. Yam Hill? Yam? I don't think it's Yam, Yam Hill. Yeah, Yam, probably, probably, uh, given the, uh, Oregonian accent, it's, it's Yam Hill. Yam, Yam Hill? Yam Hill? Yam Hill. Yam Hill. Yam Hill. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, if you go there, they're probably like, <laughs> no one pronounces the H. <laughs> Does Yam Hill even exist anymore? Oh yeah, Yam Hill. It uh, it has a population of a thousand. A thousand. Oh, what? it's 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 uh, certainly moved ahead in the world since the nineteen tens. Yeah, one thousand. Uh, one thousand residents. Oh my! It's it's total. It's point four one square miles. Is what it says. That doesn't make any sense. Point point four one square miles. 
I don't I don't understand how that's possible. You can, what? <laughs> okay, so we're we're all we're already off track. This is the first. No, of, no it's of, a, a thousand total population, <laughs> a thousand total population density, two thousand eight hundred per square mile. So I guess that is that's right. Yam Hill hasn't exactly. It, it, it was it, it was not benefit. It did not benefit from the Great Depression. Right. Let's just put it that way. Right. Well, so this this is the first of uh, two volumes of memoirs that Beverly Clary published. Mm -hmm. um, now, did she publish these before or after Ramona's World? Uh, uh, these are. This is eighty eight. This is before the final Ramona book. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is, this is well before her, uh, her nineties boom that <laughs> <laughs> consisting of one book. Yeah. Uh, no, she it was Strider was the nineties, right? Oh, was it? I yeah, think okay. so. Yeah. Yeah. She was too busy supervising the Beezus and Ramona movie, um, uh, which she, which she saw and she was, as we, as we noted, she was okay with, she was okay with it. She thought it was a good movie to take your kids to, but, uh, did, Hey, did you know that she's still alive? She is. Still kicking it. I was I was I knew that intellectually and then I saw it online and I'm like, I cannot believe it. She is just she is she is doing OK to 104 years old. And and everybody who I tell about this podcast say, have you had her on the right. podcast? <laughs> right. And I said, have you met Phil and me? Yeah. We're, we aren't the type to uh, call up centenarian <laughs> yeah. uh, ladies and, and ask them to be on a, a, a podcast. She, well, we did. We did. Ha we did. We did have uh, the, the producers of the Ramona TV series on. Right, so that was right. our that was our get. Um, right. OK. The closest. That well, after after not getting Sarah Polly. Thanks a lot, Sarah. <laughs> Sarah Polly would sent back a lovely letter saying that she was busy with uh, something else. What was it like maternity leave or something Probably like that? Probably something so. like that. So. <laughs> sounds like a sounds like an excuse. But uh, yeah, so the girl from Yam Hill, which covers up up until it's, it's, so it's her, her earliest. So this is not an autobiography. This is a memoir. This is like, here's what I remember. This is very much like it starts off. With these very vague memories, she's like, here's kind of what I remember being a kid. And then it builds in detail as she gets older, which I found fascinating. That's like a cool it was a cool read. It didn't feel like she had sat down and researched family history so much as she's just relating. Here's everything here. Just sort of in a glut. Like, here's here's my life. When we were reading this, uh, I, Phil and I were uh, messaging each other back and forth about how scattershot the, this book seemed and how nothing seemed to be cohesive. And then it really uh, comes together in the end. And boy, don't we look foolish. Yeah, it is. It's so I'm going to I'm going to be like totally honest right now and say parts of this. I was just like, yeah, OK, we OK. You're still a kid in the Depression. We get it. Uh, but it does. She there's a method to her to her. There's no forward momentum because you're literally just following a life. And were she not a famous writer, this could have been anyone growing up in this time. I think part of what makes this so remarkable is that it's so unremarkable. Well, there, there. I, I will say this about Be Beverly Cleary. She, um, she starts the story as a young child. Her first memories are memories uh, related to World War One, or at least hearing about the end of World War One, yeah. and being in this tiny little farming town of of Yamhill, and living on a farm that's outside of town, and 
she spends a lot of time talking about her family and how, among other things, one of her grandparents came across the country in a covered wagon. She stands with one foot in the very end of frontier America. Mm -hmm. She's 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 comes from parents who are making a go at having a farm on in in about as far west as you can go in the United States uh, in 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 the 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 remnants of the of the frontier. Yeah. And failing at that mm -hmm. and moving to Portland which at this point is becoming a metropolis. Right. You know, she talks at the beginning of, of the of, of their move to Portland about being just uh, a few blocks away from the edge of town, where everything is rough and all the and there's there, there's there's basically still undeveloped land everywhere. And you just step out out of town, you're basically out in the woods. And this resonated with me, Phil, because uh, coming from as I've said before, the smallest town, Eureka, Illinois. Uh, I actually lived in, in, on the side of town right next to a cornfield. Mm. And you, literally, if you walked about 30 yards down the street, past the last house on the street, you were outside of town. And so I, I know what it's like to live uh, kind of on the edge of the world. Yeah, I, what I found what I found fascinating with this is that she I mean, sort of what you said, which is that we are discussing a woman who is, again, still alive, who has memories of relatives who were those covered wagon people, those like the idea, the idea, the pop cultural idea of the people like forging, uh, obviously, through other people's land. Uh, but uh, but there's it, well, what's interesting is that she talks in one point about how the first time these people moved they encountered friendly native americans and then the second time they they traveled they encountered hostile native americans there's no point at no point in her story does she try to reflect on what happened between those two those two periods that turned the friendliness into hostility uh there is no attempt to reconcile her experiences with uh, with what was happening in the United States as a whole, we sort of see everything is told through the eyes of a child. So there's no attempt on in this in this story to to relate her experiences to the American experience, uh, which I think is fitting because uh, that's not that wasn't her experience. She wasn't reflecting on this kind of stuff at the time, uh, but it does stand out. It's not as egregious as, say, uh, a Laura Ingalls Wilder where where you're getting a, a romance you're not getting a romanticization of of her of her life experiences but you are still getting that childlike perspective of like all i know is exactly what happened in front of me and what i overheard grown-ups talking about right uh, actually i would i would call this a reverse laura ingles wilder because if you read those little house books those um the, the the conceit of those books is every book starts with Pa saying, oh, somebody's moved down by the creek five miles away. Time to move on to, to new territory and constantly outrunning the encroachment of civilization yeah. and, and constantly trying to make a go at it in in the wilderness. And this is a book about people starting in a point of, of trying to make a go of it in what remains of the wilderness and giving up and, yeah. and 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 getting assimilated into into a big city life at a time when it wasn't 
quite clear what that meant yet yeah. you know there were they they chose just the wrong time to do it too because they basically move to portland only a few years before the depression yeah but but the other thing that's interesting to me, me about this is this is very much the story of cleary becoming a writer of of, of of her earliest memories of language, her earliest memories of reading, her constant commentary on the classes she took mm-hmm. and the books she was reading. Uh, and I find that really fascinating. She starts out uh, the, the book uh, not really enjoying reading, only reading for her was something that her parents did for her. Yeah. And, and, and eventually she becomes a great reader and, uh, and I'm I'm really fascinated by the books that uh, she intersects with. Mm. There's a lot of of these memories that obviously became the basis for little vignettes from all the books that we've read. Oh yeah, on a micro and a macro level, it's fascinating. One of the, the the things that happens early on is her mom, who came from Chicago originally and who doesn't like living on the farm, wants to start a a small lending library, just like in uh, Emily's mm-hmm. runaway imagination. <laughs> I think there was one point where she she writes a letter to the editor of the paper and says that uh, it is said a young girl who reads George Eliot's Adam Bede will never give her parents much cause for worry. <laughs> And I think that's such a strange thing, you know, first of all, George Eliot, uh, of, of all things, being the, 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 the book that this farming community that they're all going to read. And Adam Bede is George Eliot's first novel. And it's about a woman who becomes pregnant and kills her child. Um, so it's a uh, <laughs> so there's a lot unsaid in that, that sentence. Which is which is funny, because one of the things you really that really comes through in this book is Beverly Cleary's very dry sense of humor. Uh, there's not a lot of humor in this book, She, but you can tell what she finds to be amusing anecdotes. In fact, most of the humor comes from the uh, the photograph she includes with her little, like, with her incredibly sarcastic comments uh, that label each photo. She... Just sort of like they're they're all she she labels them almost like people would label like a Facebook picture that they're just sort of like rolling their eyes at. She finds she doesn't like pictures of herself and she makes that very clear. Uh, speaking of Emily's Runaway Imagination, uh, that's the book that has uh, the Kwong Hop character, right? The uh, right the, the Chinese yeah. character. She mentions that he that there was a there was a guy in in uh, in town named Kwong Hop who was from China, uh, who had come across to America to, to build the railroads and had stayed on. He only gets mentioned in a, uh, in one paragraph, but what was funny is in, in, in doing research for this, for this episode, um, I don't, I don't even actually know where this, at one point she talked more about him and there's a, there's a, an anecdote that she related in an interview that really, I was like, why did she not include this in her, in her book? And it says that, uh, when I was four years old, a neighbor showed me a picture book. This is about her. This is about her, like learning to enjoy books. And she says, when I was four years old, a neighbor showed me a picture book, which so delighted me that she invited me to look at it anytime I pleased. Unfortunately, her bachelor son had made a deal to sell me for a nickel to another neighbor, Kwong Hop, who was planning to return to China to die. To reach the book, <laughs> I had to pass Kwong Hop's house. And since I did not want to go to China, but I did want to see that book, I snaked on my stomach through tall grass and arrived damp with spit bug spit. 
Alert for the sun's footsteps so I could hide in the pantry, I perched on a kitchen chair and studied the pictures. And that was her first encounter with with picture books and like and, and that. But I found it fascinating that she chose not to include that Quang Hop story, even though that is reflected in Emily's runaway imagination. There's like that similar that similar like it's it's done more teasingly in that book. But that's one of those things where she takes you said like she takes not just incidents, but these emotional beats from her life and incorporates those into her fiction. And it's, it's, I wouldn't even say it's tempting to read into it because it's very clear that like her relationship with her mother became Ramona's relationship with her mother on a much more gentle level on a much more understand. It's like, it's like she was using her mother was very manipulative, uh, borderline abusive, like emotionally abusive. And it's fascinating how she turned that into Ramona's relationship with her mother, which was again, like very like adversarial, but not the, the, the horrible thing that Beverly Cleary seemed to have gone through in her, in her, uh, in her childhood. I think the main thing she actually took in Ramona was the emotional distance mm-hmm. that Ramona felt from the mother and the surprise that Ramona felt, uh, in a moment when, mother let her guard down and was affectionate with her and how strange that felt because uh in this book she talks about how her mother never shows a smidgen of affection Mm -hmm. or sympathy for her until she has uh tonsillitis for like the third time and has her tonsils removed and as she's coming as uh beverly clary is coming out of uh anesthesia her mom is calling her dear and darling and she, beverly young beverly doesn't know what to do with that yeah. she she it, it feels so strange to her yeah she never gets any affection from her mother i think there's a story about one time she visited a friend's house whose mother was very affectionate and she mentioned that to her mom and her mom like gave her a hug and a kiss basically just like here here's what it's like and she's like oh wow i sure wish i could have this more often but it never happened again <laughs> uh yeah it's it's it was that sort of that situation where she was just like you know other kids parents are affectionate towards them and her mother was like well other kids parents are stupid and what i love though is that her mother was like a incredibly intelligent uh and very much framed as like this sort of frustrated uh like this woman who was smarter than her station allowed her to to be at the time, like she didn't want to be a farmer's wife. She she just felt, sort of felt stuck in this life. And so she was kind of trying to live through Beverly Cleary uh, or like she resented her daughter for having for being at that point in her life where all of these things were open to her. So she was also trying to punish her uh, for for being young and having opportunities. It was, it's hard. To, I mean, it's that. It's I mean, it's impossible to like quantify because it's it's one of those like irrational things that like sort of manipulative parents do, which is like, do you love your kid? Do you want your kid to be happy if you're living through them? Why don't you want them to have a cool life? But you all you want them to have a cool life so you can live through it. But you also don't want them to be happy because you aren't happy. Like and and it's funny because she's very resentful of her mother through the whole book until those last three pages where she kind of says, like, I think I get what my mom was going through, which was that this is the great depression and everything sucked for everyone and nothing. My mother was just terribly unhappy. Her mother and her father had, uh, you know, they had basically the green acres relationship. The father desperately wanted to be a farmer. He desperately wanted to work outdoors. He desperately wanted to be away from people. Mm -hmm. And the 
mother having grown up in Chicago and having at some point in her past uh, studied the the classics and particularly Latin, uh, longed for culture, longed for city life, longed for people. And she wa- she did all the things with uh, young Beverly that manipulative mothers living through their daughters do. You know, she was like, you're going to learn to play the piano. You're going to learn uh, to dance. It sounds to me like both her mother and her father were extremely depressed. Yeah. And in in a time before people had the uh, the vocabulary to understand that. But it's the, the difference was her father adored her and was open with his adoration of her. And his, of course, experience was reflected in Ramona's father's experience, which is he lost his job and then he had to get a job he hated. And that sort of fed into his resentment of of his station in life. Uh, But again, Ramona's father. It's interesting, though, because Ramona's father was going through this during during the 70s, which was uh, which was very, uh, you know, like. What was happening in American, like with American, American labor, with American, like with like, also with like the energy crisis, with with inflation, you were seeing a lot of like, it could only have been paralleled during that time. Like what was happening in the Great Depression with her father suddenly made sense again with Ramona's father, like at that moment. And if she was going to write about that, as far as the father was concerned, it made sense that she had to wait until it was sort of appropriate for the kids she was writing for at that time. I just sort of find that really kind of just an interesting like thing that had to happen. It was interesting to see her take these little elements from her life and make them into elements in the Ramona stories or whatever stories she was using, uh, because there were times where she could she could transpose what was happening because it made emotional sense. And then there were times where it made no sense at all. Like uh, in, in this book, she describes herself as a young child going around on coffee can stilts, calling each other pie face. Mm-hmm. And if I recall the way she got around that in <laughs> right. the book was she had an old woman <laughs> tell Ramona, Oh, we used to do this and we used to call each other pie face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so was that supposed to be, was that, a, was that an author self insert? Was that her like Vonnegut esque like, <laughs> and then my neighbor Beverly Cleary showed up, <laughs> which is funny because Mitzi, my youngest child, has a book that has how to make coffee can stilts in it. Like, it's still a thing you can do. Oh, yeah. You can, that's 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 one thing that has had continuity. Coffee still comes in 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 big cans. Yes. Uh, if if you're if you're a snobbish coffee drinker like me, you <laughs> no, haven't no. touched those things for for years. Although I, I did learn that entomologists who work with cockroaches cannot drink coffee that comes out of cans. Because because working with cockroaches causes you to develop a severe allergy to cockroaches and the amount of cockroach dander that is allowed in canned coffee is so high that many entomologists are allergic to canned coffee. I learned that. I don't remember where I was fascinated by that. Well, I will. Uh, remember that the next time I study cockroaches. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the next time you have an entomologist come stay with you. Oh, I hope you have freshly ground beans. Don't worry, we knew you were coming. <laughs> we also keep we're keeping the cockroaches outside for the weekend. Uh, so yeah, no, it, I, but I do want to point out. I do want to. I do want to hesitate and say like this book is fascinating 
and interesting beyond just finding those parallels. Like it, even if Beverly Cleary had never written a book, this would be an, it's such an interesting look at a time in American history that we tend to, we tend to see only in terms of, of like the grapes of wrath and the dust bowl. And this is sort of a, what was kind of middle America doing at the time? Like what was what people who were trying to keep up with the Joneses while also like experiencing the, the, the ravages of the depression that she's kind of, she's kind of between worlds here. Uh, She's going to this sort of like hip modern school and there's kids who were trying to, you know, be whatever you called teenagers back then. And, and, but also like, she grew up on a farm like there's you're seeing the generational change. You're seeing America shift from a farming uh, a nation into a city nation. And quite literally, her dad has to teach himself to drive a car by reading the manual. And and, and within the next yeah. generation, the kid, the, the, the kids are buying cars and they're buying new cars. Right. And this is sort of the the Archie era where the, you know, the, the, the kids are bu- are buying old jalopies and, 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 and mm-hmm. making them, them run around the place. Um, you you mentioned she's going to a hip new school. They talk about using what's called a platoon system, yeah. which basically means the kids move from one class to another and they have a variety of classes and they can take classes that are home economics or they can take classes in foreign languages and how incensed many parents are about the fact that they the kids should just be being taught reading, writing and arithmetic. I was actually just reading a a Twitter thread. I can't remember by whom about about American education and how they were saying like one thing you have to remember about American education is that it is literally a hundred years old. It's a hundred years old, and we still don't know what we're doing. Uh, we sort of uh, for years, we for decades, we just sort of stuck with the system. And what's fascinating is this is the beginning of the American education system. Like this is this is them feeling that out and kind of figuring out what works. And I think it was codified a lot by that popular culture, like by, by that, those Archies by saying like, oh, this is, I guess this works. These big high schools where you go from class to class and here's the popular kids. And here's like the home ec kids, like that, that's the system, right? We're just going to, we're going to go with that for the next hundred years. And I think now it's interesting to see how, how much that is failing our children, like on a, on a grand scale. I always, I always wished, as I said before, that Beverly Clary had been born maybe just 10 years later and we would get her Judy Bloom adult novels. Mm. We get to see what she would write about adult novels. We don't get that here, but we do get her addressing the, the topic of adolescence and young romance and the first inklings of sex. Mm-hmm. And oh, oh boy, it was, it's, it's, it's a mess. It's rough. Because on the one hand, there's, there's a lot of, oh, of, cuteness about oh i'm going to this dance with this boy and and it's so embarrassing to have to invite a boy to a dance and to go to dance lessons and on the other hand on the other hand the the last third of this book is is given over to a a very bad relationship she has with a college uh aged uh young man who goes to her dance class and sort of attaches himself to her and she is dealing with the fact that she does not like him. He is really pushing himself on her. He wants to marry her. Mm-hmm. And so she's looking at, you know, being what, a 17 year old, 16 year old married to a 22, 23 year old 
uh, man. Yeah, she. And, yeah. <laughs> no, go ahead. And the weird thing is, her her parents seem to at first be okay, okay with this, and to the point that her mom really wants uh, wants to see this relationship come to its fruition. Uh, and you realize the parents come from a generation where, you know, the, they were out on the farm and there probably were a lot of guys in their twenties marrying teenage girls. Not that that was great, but that was probably what was happening out there in, 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 in the, the boonies. And there wasn't really a clear, social convention against this uh, at the time yeah to to be to be clear though and to be fair her mother was really pushing this the father it's that weird thing where we're only getting this from beverly cleary's perspective and she tries to understand her mother and her father and this guy who she calls gerhard uh uh she it makes it very clear that's not his name um this weird relationship she has with this guy who doesn't respect her uh, just pushes himself into her life. He forces her to do things, the social things with him that she's not interested in. Uh, he forces a kiss on her. He, you can tell she, she hints around the edges that he's trying to push his, the physical stuff that she's has no interest in. Um, and that the father does not like this guy, but he's not going to interfere with kind of the, 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 like sort of the the wheels have been set in motion by the mother. And so that sort of seems to be like how things are going to go. But she also makes it clear that if she had said or done anything, her father would uh, to her father, he would have like just decked this guy and gotten him out of her life. Like she she knew that that this that this this guy was disliked by her father. First of all, what what a what a great revenge to get on a guy to to name him Gerhardt in your uh, in your memoirs at first he seems like he's a sophisticated guy he owns his own car mm. you know he's 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 he he comes and he goes but it becomes clear not only is he terrible for beverly but he doesn't really have a lot going on no. you know he doesn't he doesn't have a lot of prospects um he becomes uh, a Jehovah's Witness, which Cleary is not keen on and certainly has no interest on uh, listening to his uh, proselytizing nor nor going to his church. It's really weird. His, her, uh, Cleary's mom says, why don't you go to church and, and tell us all about it? You know, it's this weird yeah. um, voyeurism that her, her mom has about Cleary's life. Yeah, they, they um, seem like the, the the mom seems to then want him around to almost make fun of him. Like he's interesting. He's interesting. He's different. Uh, but he's a yeah. and she even said like in the end, she says, like, looking back, like Gerhardt was a guy with not many prospects. It was the depression. He he wasn't going to be able to like he, he saw his life going nowhere and she was kind of the only girl around for him. And he joined. I mean, he joined the Jehovah's Witnesses just to kind of belong to something uh, an interviewer asked her like 10 years ago did you ever like hear from gerhardt again this guy and she was like no but he visited my parents like he he hung <laughs> around uh and i was like that's lame and then i was like i kind of did that with a girlfriend's parents once i they kept inviting me over because they liked me and that probably wasn't cool and i just started to think that maybe i was somebody's gerhardt once and that's a very bad place to be psychologically um we also find out that he's a lousy kisser uh which she discovers when she gets kissed in a school play and it's like oh there's better than the, there's better than gerhardt out there <laughs> i'm like if a if a stage kiss is 
is better than what you're getting in the backseat of a jalopy. That's that's a that's a bad kisser. Can I say that 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 line when when she writes that line, it it was a very well written line. And one of the things that does happen, as we as we said, is this book becomes more and more sophisticated as it goes along. I mean, because it yeah. starts with the these early childhood memories and it, it ends up with her being on the verge of college. Um, she becomes just a much more eloquent speaker. And she she spends a lot of time in the latter half of the book talking about her developing sensibility uh, uh, when it comes to words. Mm -hmm. and, she, and as you say, that's where a lot of her driest humor comes out. There's a there's a really funny thing. At the, 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 I think it's the the last photographic insert is her picture in the yearbook. And then she says um, uh, the the dedication fellow Migwan reads to life with its winding, bewildering roads to the world with its joys and burdensome loads. They're ours to learn, to take and give. May fortune be with us in learning to live. She's presenting without comment, yes. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She uh, she also talks a lot about her, her, her best friend, Claudine, a lot, um, who is reflected in her writing. Um, uh, which books was it? There's a... Uh, uh, Alan Tabis, yes, I think. Yes, yes. You get this sort of like this girl who has the, the family life that's a lot better than Beverly Cleary's who's a little more vivacious, who's fun to be around and uh, and who like she's kind of Beverly Cleary's escape. They they go on vacations a lot to uh, what is it? Put the land of pudding, pudding land, <laughs> pudding, 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 pudding river, pudding river. <laughs> I mean, I do not don't go to pudding river, kids. I don't understand like what, why, how it got that name. <laughs> but uh, I guess in the depression, you know, any porn is storm. But she she goes to pudding land with her friend a lot. And you, you get the sense that like there's so many aspects of her life that almost seem too perfectly suited to a children's book that. It's 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 uh, you have to keep I have to keep reminding myself that this that she turned these into a children's books, not backwards. This wasn't retrofitted like it almost seems like the Marvel Ultimate Universe of the Beverly Cleary stories. Like we took we <laughs> took all the stories and just sort of mashed them all into one coherent tale, calling it the girl, a girl from Yam Hill, because it's all there. And and uh, and it's. I want to know more about these people like where we get I don't want to say these are sketches because because she goes into such detail at times. But I do wish there was more there was more to some of these people that we that we got interviews with 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 Claudine, who only died, I think, like in uh, I think she died in the. Uh, in the early 2000, like 2005, 2006, something like that. Like it was an interview. They were like, whatever happened with Claudine? She's like, oh, we stayed in contact until a few years ago when she died and I miss her every day. Um, so yeah, like there's, there, they are these real people and they had these real experiences. And I kind of wish this was a book written, I don't know, by a journalist, just so I could get to know some of these people a little bit better. It's a rich book for the little glimpses it gives into things, yeah. the glimpses it gives into the social life of teenagers in the 1930s, to what the changes were in education, to the PTA meetings yeah. and things like that. 
it's great to see Cleary taking a, a very unvarnished look at things. Mm-hmm. She she deals with some very sad or shocking aspects of, of her life. Her her mother early on has a a, a miscarriage. Yes. And and that, of course, can't help but uh, affect the way that she thinks about uh, about Beverly and how much how much uh, she puts into Beverly at that point. I suppose the implication is she could not have children after that because yeah. they say it was such a, a very, very difficult uh, miscarriage. It sounds like a is a traumatic chapter that she tells from the perspective from her own perspective and memories. And then she fills in the blanks with what her mother told her later. Uh, and you sort of see it through the eyes of a child who just has no idea what's happening in her family. Uh, and then she's she obviously talked to her mother about it and got the full story and just yeah it's it's one of those things that you have to sort of remember as you go through the book like this incredibly terrible thing happened to her mother at this at this very transitional moment as of their family's lives and how that sort of colored every yeah everything that happened after her. i assume you're going to mention the 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 uncle john chapter yes uh, uncle I, I, uncle, joe. Uh, uncle joe. joe i do wanna i do sorry i do wanna i do wanna <laughs> just put a slight content warning for this bit because i, I want to address this chapter which came to me almost out of nowhere uh uh is a terrifying chapter and and but does have a content warning for for uh for inappropriateness with a child i guess i'll say um she doesn't go into any detail much in it and who knows what i mean we only have her memories of this because no one ever talked about it but uh it's it's incredibly disturbing uh she goes back to uh, visit her her aunt and uncle who live uh, back in the in the farm world uh, out in the middle of nowhere. And we've already been told that Uncle Joe is uh, a, a suspicious character. Mm-hmm. There was a point at which he shot a hole through uh, their house. Claiming it happened when he was cleaning his uh, gun, but uh, Cleary's father suspects that Joe might have had it in for the aunt. Yeah. Um, and so that that leaves you with a kind of like, oh, this is not a this is not a great situation. And she so one night Joe bursts into her room, apparently drunk uh, and agitated, and forces a a letter into her hands that she can't bring herself to read. Yeah. Uh, until she eventually takes a glance at it. And only all she sees is that it's signed your lover. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and here's the thing though, I, I have to say, I'm, I, 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 my heart goes out to, uh, young Beverly for going through this. I, I am <laughs> so proud of her. Mm-hmm. Joe, admonishes her never to tell anyone. Yeah. And at first, Clary doesn't want to tell anyone, not because she's afraid of Joe, because she doesn't want to cause uh, any excitement around the family. But when the parents keep saying, oh, why why don't you go on this trip with Uncle Joe or go stay with him for a while? They've been asking you to do this. And she refuses to. And, and they say, well, why are you doing that? She just tells them. Yes. And, and I was like, you go, girl. Right. And, and it's very clear this is a this is a time when you didn't talk about this kind of stuff like you didn't there weren't 
you didn't teach kids about this kind of stuff, certainly. And uh, these were just those those. This is the family member you just tried to keep the kids away from. Uh, you didn't do anything about it. And it is interesting that Beverly Cleary in her in her childlike way did something about it. Like she she didn't keep quiet. She didn't she didn't play by the the sort of family rules. Uh, and and yeah, they never they never saw Uncle Joe again. And it's there is something about the way she tells it though and the behavior of the uncle and the actions of the uncle that i found deeply on like if it had been a standard movie of the week narrative uh what you kind of would expect from that kind of like chapter i, I mean i not to like frame it crude not to not to be crude or anything but like uh it would have it would have been one thing but because it was so eerie and his behavior was was about as predatory as you can get um that it 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 makes the whole like it made me sick to my stomach like reading it just this incredibly dreadful human being and this poor little child and uh that that it ended on at least a you know like a positive note for her uh just it was like a huge breath of I just had a huge sigh of relief when it was finally over because uh, it, it just it uh, God knows it could have it probably went up, you know, the wrong end up for so many other kids uh, uh, in that era. And I did, that he encountered like, who knows? Um, but it was really surprising. I was not expecting I wasn't expecting it in this book because it's not something that she certainly ever brought up in any of her fiction. Right. No, her, her fiction, uh, even her teen books yeah. were very, very um, sexless. Mm -hmm. it, and, and, and it's it's interesting to see Clary deal with uh, adolescence with such dry humor. Yeah. There was like um, <laughs> there was a wonderful line at the end of one chapter where she said her mother gave her the only piece of advice on sex she ever gave was not to play leapfrog with a boy <laughs> because they might look up yeah. <laughs> yep it is a good piece of advice <laughs> like even today what's funny is like that sounds like a euphemism it sounds very couched in in like deep meaning but it could also just have been very literal just like don't play leapfrog with a boy look up uh but i think i tend to feel i tend to read beverly cleary as as very sexless because her books are so it's hard to get a read on her as a person like until you read this book and you're like oh she just she just never saw fit to include any of that in her books probably because it just didn't i don't know there by the time she was experiencing stuff like this she was in college she was she was uh getting older and and it just never fit into the stories she was telling but yeah like her experience with boys until she goes off to college, at least and at least as far as I know, because I haven't read the sequel to this yet, uh, is is very much just like the kisses she shared with gross Gerhard and, you know, like the stage kiss she got from boys like that was and that was all that was expected because we're still living in a time when uh, girls were girls were expected to not focus just on one guy but also if they dated too many guys they were seen as easy uh but also if you let a guy on that was bad but also if you didn't make any promises to a guy that was like she was just it's, it's it was such a horribly complicated social world to live in 
there was another boy that she had uh, a, a, a relationship with. Was it Roger? Was his name something or? like that? Yeah, um, he was. He was. There was a, 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 another boy with a car, and it was interesting because they that ended up being a very chaste relationship too, in that he uh, he basically said, uh, "I'm going to kiss you if mm. you ask me to," and she said, "I'm not going to ask you to," and. That was an interesting exchange because it, it, she 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 said that while they never ever kissed, she left that relationship and knowing that there are more interesting boys in the world. Yeah, you know she she found him she found him to be uh, you know humorous and uh, she was interested in the way that they sparred intellectually. Mm -hmm. So that was that was good. Um, you know, there, there, there are these little, these little windows and like she and Claudine for a while were reading Zane Gray. And I, I love the line where she, she talked about how they, she, they found him very funny because there was a book in which a young ranch hand was a woman pretending to be a man who got shot and the, and the hero of the book pulls open her shirt and is surprised by what he finds there. And they, they find that hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting that she had this, she did have this creative life, this sort of, it, it, that sort of comes through in Bits and Bobs, how, you know, she's, she's clearly a good writer from an early age. Her teachers, all of her teachers recognize this. They're like, from, from the first time she writes an essay and her teacher's like, you're going to be a children's author one day. And she starts, I love that she teaches the lesson though. And I, I, I love this because this was pointed out to, uh, to Willow when we were looking at scholarships, which is she, she enters a contest, uh, an essay contest and she wins and she's so overwhelmed that she won this contest. And then she finds out she was the only one who entered the contest. And instead of saying like, well, that doesn't count then she's like, oh, I learned from that moment on always try because most people won't. So you have a really good chance of getting ahead because most people will never get that. They're not even going to get far enough to finish their story. And and that's one of the things that the that the scholarship guy said to us uh, a few years ago, which was no, you apply for every scholarship because. Nine times out of 10, no one's applying for these scholarships. So go ahead and give it a shot. You may get it just because no one else showed up. And and I think that's actually a really good lesson to teach young readers, which is most people don't most people just aren't going to even try. So you're already ahead of the game. And she puts that to good use in this in the in, in her life. She she's like, well. No other of the no other young women are, are giving this a shot. So I'm just going to I'm going to write myself into this play. I'm going to be the lead in this show and I'm going to I'm going to make the most of it. So, yep. The other part that I, I that's that's like that, that I loved was when she talks about how I think she was around eighth grade. She she was given a uh, she was given an assignment to uh, write a passage of description by uh, Mrs. Drake, mm -hmm. and she, so she writes about a, a a scene that she described just earlier in the book of when her father almost hit a deer as they were driving back from the country, and she gets this. She up to this time she's been having enormous success in school and particular uh, praise for her writing abilities. She gets back a. Uh, a uh, marked up page that's just covered with red pencil. And uh, Mrs. Drake has 
problem with basically every adjective she's using in this in this in this paragraph. And uh, Cleary says afterwards, I realized that because of this, I stayed away from writing description in my books and many children have have uh, thanked me for that yeah. because they they're so glad that there's not long passages of description in her book. Uh, and I, I think that I find that really interesting, you know, the way that she's able to very practically move back on these things. Mm -hmm. You know, she the, there, there's also the line she said earlier or, or later in the book when she's taking a typing class and she never quite gets it. She said that later in life, people asked her what the hardest part about writing was. And she would say typing. Yeah. And she said, people thought I was joking, but it's it's not it's not a joke. It's the hardest thing for me. Uh, she also tells a story about uh, they had to like use a, a little boy in one of her classes had to use a word in a sentence. He had to use the word hot in a sentence to prove that he I guess he understood what hot meant. And he said, like, a pillow is hot. And the teacher was like, nope, you're wrong. Uh, fire is hot. Like the sun is hot, but pillows aren't hot. And how she was like kind of outraged by that, like it was outraged enough by the fact that the teacher would contradict the boy to, to, to remember it for the rest of her life. And to me, that's there's there's this what shines through a lot is even in her own mem memories, there's this deep understanding of the injustice of childhood and the uh, the validation that kids don't receive for their own inner lives that obviously comes through in all of her books. This 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 sense that, no, what kids are experiencing, uh, even among adults, is is just as important as what the adults are going through. By the end of this book, it becomes a, a strangely affecting book, especially if you've read The Luckiest Girl, mm -hmm. as, as we have, because this is all leading up to her eventual uh, journey to California, yes. which to her represents freedom. It represents opportunity. It represents a world of, of, of wild bohemian life that is not available in, in Portland. Uh, and, uh, it makes more sense in, in the context of this book where her, it, it's, it's her, her great aunt, uh, has a daughter who wants to invite Beverly down to take classes at the community college in her town. Yes. And it, and that's another thing that's, that's fascinating to me is sort of like the parents argue about it and then they're like, okay, fine. At first they're going to ship her on a boat and then they can't. So they're going to ship her on a bus. Yeah. And, and it, that kind of, packing people off to go live with someone else for a while. Um, you know, today it would be a much bigger operation and there would be much more discussion and it would be more remarkable, I guess. But, but at that time it was just like, okay, great. Now she's going to go live in, in California for uh, a while. But there is an element in it about how, they hear about it and they're, they immediately first they dismiss it like that's impossible. Like we can't afford to send her to she can't take a boat like that's and she's like, no, I'm going to make this happen no matter what. And so she gets this magical offer. I guess this is also really interesting because this is sort of the birth of the community college. Uh, it's like at the at the beginning of like these communities will have colleges. And the idea is that if you live in the area, you can go for free, which is because all this whole time, like all of her friends are making their college plans. And she's like, well, I don't, 
there's nothing I can't afford to go to like my parents. I'm not even going to ask my parents for money to go to college. I could never afford that. She gets given a gift by a rich relative of $50, which will cover her, her like trip to California and like books or something. And that also just falls into her lap. So she's kind of like, I got to take advantage of these opportunities. And you also get the end of it. She's, she's running away from her mother. She's trying to get out from under this terrible, like this oppressive, parenting that she's been surrounded by and again it almost seems like something that was written by a, a children's book author sort of like to get your heroine onto the next stage of her life except that this is this is what happened and then she works it again into luckiest girl it's also funny that you're 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 fleeing portland oregon to get to a more bohemian lifestyle does it seem a little a little backwards these days the Portland that's described in this book is is a is an interesting Portland to me because it feels like it's just on the verge of becoming a city. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's there's still a lot of very small town aspects to it, and what passes for culture in this, you know, obviously there's Reed College there. You know, she's there. There is. There is culture there, uh, and 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 she doesn't want to go to Reed yeah. because she doesn't want to be around her her parents. Um, but it isn't it it isn't uh, Portlandia yet. It is it and and it isn't even quite yet the Portland of Henry Huggins. No. It's 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 interesting. She they lived in two places in Portland. One was. Uh, a little bit north of Clickitat Street, and one was a little bit south of Clickitat yeah. Street. And I, 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 if I knew Portland better than I do, I, I'm, I'm curious to know what the, um, what the the mag magnetic pull of Clickitat was for 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 uh, young uh, Miss Clary, the young Beverly Clary. Is did did was that the place where all the rich people lived or at least the middle class people lived or, or was it just the name of the street like is that one of those streets that you hear the name of and you're like i bet fun things happen on clickitat street like i bet that's where cool like fun kids of except of course henry huggins didn't live on clickitat street he lived on uh he lived on uh one of the cross streets one of the parallel streets uh Clickitat and I can't remember what they he he lived on a separate street from Ramona and them. Uh they had to go down to his street. Uh close enough that he went to the same school. But I can see like that street having like a certain like if you're gonna if you're gonna pick a name, that's a good one to have your to have your spunky heroine on. Um but yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh it is it is very much a book about about transitions, about a very uneasy relationship with your community, with your family, with your parents, with uh, you know, like it's, it's not a comfortable book, uh, all the time. This isn't, she doesn't have rose colored glasses about, about her childhood and it wouldn't be interesting if she did. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's, but it, it is very much, I, we also didn't point out her last name was bun. Oh, right. Yes. Why bun. would you name your child Beverly? If your last name is bun, that's such a unfortunate, <laughs> like, we're going to be like, we want you to not be the popular girl. Like, that's just like, that just sounds like what you would call your kid, like Beverly Bunn. Like, that's such a weird thing to do. I don't understand it. Um, yeah, I, I, I do want to say that this book is full of, of, of photos, not like 10 pages of full glossies, like in the middle of like a, a movie novelization. But throughout, she has these little these photographs, uh, which kind of surprised me because uh, you just don't think of like, 
a family in the depression having this much documentation of their existence, but they are like, like, uh, Gerhardt had a camera. And so he would take photos of her in the most awkward situations. Like he enjoyed taking embarrassing photos of her, like having a hard time of it. And unfortunately those are some of the photos that she has. She's like, here I am like trying to climb down an embankment. It stunk. Gerhard thought it was hilarious. So here's this photo of me. <laughs> like, and I'm like, God, this guy was such a, such a piece of work. But again, he was, he was kind of the Archie Andrews of the, of the neighborhood. So what, what, what can you do? What, God, Gerhard. Uh, I do want to know who this guy was. Like, he's a mystery. He is the mystery of like the Beverly Cleary bio. Like we don't actually, no one knows who Gerhard was. Like, who was this guy who ran off with the Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, disappeared from American history? We don't know. Like, what was his name? Like, what was his story? Who were his family? Like, we don't know. Uh, will, will someone do oh, the his, research? His, his dad, didn't his dad commit suicide? Yes. Yeah. yeah this tragic this tragic past. Uh, yeah, it was, it's, it's, who was this, this dark? Yeah, I don't know. He, she should have embraced the darkness and become like a moody poet or something, but instead he was just a jerk with a car. who tried to put his hands all <laughs> well, over you our know, author. The, the, the beat generation was, you know, <laughs> tw- tw- 20 years away at this point. So. Isn't it wild that Henry Huggins came out 70 years ago? Came out in 1950, 70 years ago, and the author is still kicking. She's still with us. I can't get over the fact that Beverly Cleary is still alive. Uh, I also think that if you're an author and you're going to write books about your life, and I, this goes for the Berenstains as well, though they're dead. Uh, you can't just you can't just write up until that first book is published. Guess what? We want to know about the books. We want to know about your life after you publish your first book. Authors seem to think that's where life stops being interesting. But as readers, I just I know that the next book kind of ends when her writing career gets started. I'm just telling you authors right now, let us know what happened after that first big break, because cool. We don't leave it up to your later, like later biographers, because we want to hear from your mouth. Um. Yeah, but that's kind of where the girl from a girl, a girl from Yamhill. That's kind of where a girl from Yamhill ends. It ends with her hitting the hitting the dusty trails and heading off to. It also, I, I felt bad. She had to take the bus to uh, California, didn't she? Bus or train? Bus. Yeah, yeah she gets horribly car sick. So I'm going to assume that my own two feet starts with just a litany of a, a tale of of just vomiting out of bus windows because <laughs> God knows she could barely make it to downtown Portland on a bus without having to throw up in this book. So uh, I shudder to think what those poor those poor passengers on the bus to California were going through with Beverly Cleary in the seat next to you. Like someone filled their diary with those stories. Uh well, it's good to be back talking about <laughs> Beverly Cleary again. It is fun. Even though this is actually the penultimate uh, book here for us. Yeah. I, it, it has been a while since we podcast. We've been, we've been, we've been stretching this out, uh, but we, we're going to wrap this up. Yeah. It will be with some wistfulness that I, we turn to the, the, the last book of this series. Um, I don't know what, what uh, major childhood author I will turn to next. I. T.H. White only wrote three children's books. So. Right. <laughs> okay. We could do the uh, the Great Brain series. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah. I'm, I'm staring at them across across from me on the bookshelf. Across. I have the whole Great Brain series, which oh, right. for, those, forgotten classics of the frontier. Right. And those were those were uh, those were illustrated by Robert McClaskey. Mm, I think they? so. Yep. 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 Who, who did, of course, uh, Homer Price. Mm-hmm. 
and Centerberg Tales, which uh, are also books that I don't know if kids read anymore. Nobody reads Homer Price. Uh, That's a shame. Because of the donut machine. That's all I remember. I think we had this discussion like five years ago when we started this podcast. All I remember is that Homer Price made a, made a donut machine, worked a donut machine. I can't remember what happens. Again, that was the example of like books kids could sort of relate to, but they were no Henry Huggins. Uh, you know, kids were like, where's my tales of horse meat and right, uh, right. misbehaving dogs? Well, well, listeners, um, Phil has three podcasts uh other than this so it may not be a it may be a while before he and i uh do embark on another podcast uh journey but in the meantime if there if there is a an author you you'd like us to to read why not send us a letter we haven't gotten any letters up till this point so uh you can uh, add us on twitter add us on twitter uh you can find me at P. Corey Gonzalez on Twitter. You can also find my other shows. I do I do Deep in Bear Country, which is a, a Berenstain Bears podcast. I do uh, I do uh, uh, It's Del Toro Time, which has nothing to do with Guillermo del Toro anymore, uh, where me and my daughter Willow are reading uh, all the stories in David G. Hartwell's uh, The Dark Descent uh, horror collection. Uh, and I also do uh, 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 Pizza Toast with Christy Admiral, which is uh, a Babysitter's Club TV show podcast we're about to st- we're kicking off the uh the the 1990s series of the babysitters club uh one of the few podcasts i do that does not involve reading a lot of stories <laughs> and of course you do well you can sophomore lit and uh well you can see me on twitter at at trace mcjoy don't ask me why <laughs> there is a story uh behind that um and i do aside from this i do sophomore lit uh, where I reread books that you read in high school or maybe as a middle age reader or sometimes in, in, in college. Uh, currently, I am preparing uh, Atlas Shrugged and I, I, I am, am ruining the day. But we'll, we'll but I will get through this uh, just as we will get through Beverly Cleary. Yes. Uh, my, what's the next one called? It's a. Uh... Uh, my own two my feet. own two feet don't miss more of the life of beverly cleary my that's what it says in the front of this book my own two feet uh uh yeah and uh it's it's very good it's very good <laughs> okay Goodbye, everyone. Thanks to my lovely wife, Marina McCoy, for reading the opening. Click It Cast is brought to you by The Incomparable Network. Find more funny, smart podcasts online at theincomparable.com.